it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode of Demystified was made possible by our top tier patrons like Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. The backlog of bonus episodes is finally starting to clear. The one that was due uh, September last has just been released. So if you're waiting for bonus episodes, they are going to start coming out quick fire and we're going to catch up pretty soon. Otherwise, thanks for supporting the show, even just by listening. It really does make a difference. This season's going to be a little light on the mystery and heavier on the history, but that's part of broadening what demystified means. And ultimately, I think it'll be interesting. Season five, we're going to be going back to more mystery based things, but for now, I hope you'll enjoy. eighteen ninety seven somewhere in the South Atlantic, far south, as south as south goes, as a matter of fact, a ship from the unlikeliest of places drifts ever southward, and its expedition is one that hasn't been undertaken in decades. It was whalers of all people who had most recently charted these waters, though that was in the loosest of terms here where the wind never stops roaring and waves can sink ships whole, is a land of desolation. Unlike its northern counterpart, nobody lives here. Nothing grows. Those few animals who do inhabit it are especially suited to it. The crew presses onwards because in spite of the cold they knew would come, their goal is almost in sight. The journey to this forbidden land has not been an easy one. One man lost already, washed over the side of the ship and gone forever in the dark, brackish water. The captain has ambitions of great heroics, and his crew share the sentiment. Among them, in fact, are a number of notables whose ventures will earn them future success and status. In the distance, a signalman hollers. From the bow, the mists part, and the sight ahead of them is a sight to behold. Sheets of ice mile high and infinitely thick, stretching off endlessly into the distance. Small moving shapes, funny little animals in black and white diving from cliffs, only to spring back and frolic in the water that's so cold it'll kill a man in minutes. The wind blows hard in the sails as it has done the whole way here, and the further south they've gone, the harder it blows. The navigators say they'll go no further south this year, but for those who've not left their home countries, this new world is uncanny, like setting foot onto another planet entirely. This is Antarctica, the last continent, and they are the first explorers to truly set their sights on delving to its frozen heart in generations. This crew, however, have no idea what they're in for. They have men who've come from the cold, Norwegians making a decent percentage of the crew, but it's nothing to compare to this. In addition to the cold, the polar night is something that many of these men have only ever heard of. Months of the year where the sun doesn't shine at all, and then the other months where it never sets. Time is not what it seems, and your compass betrays you the closer you get to your goal. That winter was harsh. They hadn't brought what they'd needed to survive, and the men suffered terribly. Scurvy ran rife. They ate all they had and more. Their two leaders became so ill they wrote their wills and several men just went mad. One of them abandoned their ship, striding across the ice, announcing that he was going to walk his way back home. He recovered. Others were not so lucky. This expedition would have mixed results. A success in the sense that it was they who plumbed the furthest depths of human discovery up until that point, and a failure in that they were underprepared, ill-equipped, 
and by the skin of their chattering teeth avoided tearing each other to shreds on the ice and bleaching in the bitter wind. But the race had now begun, and the goal was the ultimate prize in exploration, the South Pole. What the Belgian Antarctic expedition unleashed was a frenzied dash for glory, with reasons ranging from staunchly scientific to deeply personal and ambitious. Some went for the sense of adventure. To these people it was out of space, and they were the astronauts, voyages to a land untouched by man since time immemorial. Others went for science, and more than you would think. This new continent could contain anything, any number of plants or animals, and up until now it had been the remit of science fiction to dare to dream what might lie at the southernmost point of the Earth. Many went for personal and national glory. This was, unfortunately, the age of empire, and the bragging rights of planting your flag and claiming things was important to some, even if what you claimed was unusable and that claim unenforceable. And here we run into the crux of this season. The men of this era are referred to in any history book as heroes. This is, after all, the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. But is that the case? In the one reading, the classical reading, these explorers were scientists, brave adventurers, facing hardship and using camaraderie to overcome insurmountable odds and push the limits of the human imagination. They did what others wouldn't or couldn't, and used the height of their ability to forge new paths, putting the capstone on an era that defined itself with newness and the pursuit of knowledge. In another reading, these men are fools, blinded by personal passions and jingoistic tub-thumping, who suffered frostbite, starvation and madness in a place they had no reason to go for motivations as flimsy as being able to say, I went there and put a flag down. Heroes hardly, it would seem, building their legacies and reputations off the backs of the sled dogs they shot and fed to each other, who had no choice in that matter, and the men whose names wouldn't grace the papers in London doing the hardest labour, only to be slighted in favour of the charismatic heroes. Men who made bad decisions and paying dear prices being hailed as fallen heroes. We speak much of those men, but never the poor bastards who disappeared into the ice never to be seen again. Whether or not you get a place in the history books depends very much on who you know. Much like earlier objects of our study, the legacies of these explorers have made them hard to study. For decades their reputations remained untouched, and those who did, did what had to be done. So, now it's up to us to ask whether or not that's so. Was it all worth it, in the end? In Demystified's fourth season, we unpack centuries of build-up, in the literal and metaphorical sense, and talk about Antarctica, specifically the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration and its mythological heroes. So, the cat's out of the bag. After a brief hiatus, we're back and looking at the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Believe me, that phrase is loaded as all hell, and we will absolutely be getting into specifically what that means and thoroughly demystifying the era, dispelling the myths and misconceptions, and shedding light on some of the pages of this chapter that you might not know about. We will also be talking about the nice sides of things too. Antarctica is as beautiful as it is dangerous, and that shouldn't be ignored. We will also be touching on the environmental side of things later in the season, because you can't talk about what it means to study Antarctica in a major way for the first time without talking about what that means for us today. Y'all know I like to have a lesson for us to learn at the end of these. Let's get down to brass tacks. What is the heroic age of Antarctic exploration? It's the period from, most agree, 1897 to 1922, when a huge surge of exploration of Antarctica happened. 
After that, we enter what's called the Mechanical Age, and from there we go to the Modern Age. The exploration of Antarctica was slow for reasons we'll get into, not least because until the modern era, nobody lived there. Unlike the Inuit, Yupik, Sami, and other associated groups who live in the Arctic Circle from Norway to Canada, nobody lives in the Antarctic, and for good reason, really. Antarctica is inhospitable, and not in a if-you-know-how-to-work-with-the-place-you-can-live-there kind of way like the Arctic Circle. The indigenous inhabitants, who live in more traditional modes there, have to work hard to ensure their personal safety and security outside of permanent settlements, but you can't live in Antarctica like that. First off, Antarctica isn't connected by land to anything else. It's a separate continent. The indigenous people of the Arctic Circle have and have had contact with people who they could trade with from further south who had access to stuff they didn't. If you live in Antarctica, which has no indigenous inhabitants, you have to bring in everything you need from somewhere else. Moreover, many of those indigenous groups used to travel seasonally, moving with the game to hunt and with weather conditions. Secondly, and on top of that point, Antarctica is, pardon my French, very fucking cold. Nothing grows there. According to the British Antarctic Survey, only two flowering plants have been found and no trees or shrubs of any kind live there. Which means the animals are predators, surviving off of fish and each other. There may not be polar bears, but game for hunting is scarce, to say the least, and you can't cut down trees to make houses or find any fresh fruit or vegetables. You could build an igloo, like you can do up north, but that only solves one immediate problem. Moreover, the nature of the cold in Antarctica is on another level entirely. For instance, Antarctica is the windiest place in the world. Its catabatic winds, high-density cold air flowing with the force of gravity, can reach up to and possibly exceeding 200 miles per hour and frequently blow over 100 miles per hour. The coldest natural temperature at ground level ever recorded anywhere on Earth was at the Vostok Station in Antarctica. The temperature was negative 89.2 Celsius. Negative... 89.2. So Antarctica is remote, and it's cold, and it's extremely windy. But okay, you're determined to settle Antarctica because you have, I don't know, some sort of fixation. You'd be in good company with the characters of our season's stories, for better or for worse. Well, not so fast. The super high winds mean two things. First off, sea travel is extremely difficult. The latitudes at 40, 50, and 60 degrees south are referred to as the Roaring Forties, Furious Fifties, and Shrieking Sixties, because the lack of significant landmasses at those latitudes means wind and waves can grow to exceptional and dangerous heights. But it also affects air travel. Antarctic flying is tricky business, and not at all easy or convenient, and it's also seasonally locked. At certain times of year, conditions are just too bad to fly, like with sailing. Once the winter sets in, you're stuck there till the summer. And that's not even to speak of the pack ice. If you sail south, even in times of the year that you think will be fine, you might find yourself staying a little longer than you'd intended. Still though, nothing stops western explorers in the age of imperialism from wanting to stick their fingers into every conceivable undiscovered pie, right? Why no serious attempts to go south for so long? Well, let me take you back. We talked before about the Franklin Expedition in episode 4 of our first series, one of our first ever episodes, and we'll refer back to that a couple of times this episode. James Clark Ross and Francis Crozier had, in the Erebus and Terror, been to what was then furthest south, 78 degrees 9 minutes 30 seconds south. This record set would remain unbroken for 58 years. Why so long? Well, several reasons. Well, firstly, there didn't seem to be anything of any value in the south. In the north lay the fabled and presumably valuable Northwest Passage, that sea route that would make the Cape Horn at the southernmost point of South America obsolete. The fact that nobody lived there meant that there was nobody to do a colonialism on, and for empires interested in that sort of thing for soulless profit motivations, a place whose value was purely scientific wasn't super attractive to the people holding the purse strings. 
On top of that, when Franklin went missing, his wife Lady Jane Franklin spurred into action the greatest missing persons case in history up until that point, sending entire fleets of explorers from all over the world to the Canadian Arctic. For the results of that search, go and listen to that episode, but what it meant was that not only did people's eyes fix northward for decades, but the clear and obvious failure of Franklin, despite his supposed preparedness, had put the chill in many who'd wished to try their hands. So it was that people sort of forgot about Antarctica. Not many even knew that it existed. Up until that point, Antarctica had been something of a speculation. The first confirmed sighting of it had been in 1820 by a Russian expedition, but aside from two speculative landfalls, i.e. unconfirmed, in 1820 and 1853, almost no progress going to Antarctica was made. So it was that we had what was called the Age of Averted Interest. But people hadn't forgotten about it. Jules Verne wrote The Adventures of Captain Hatteras, a story about an English expedition to the North Pole in 1864, and tentative feelers were sent southward from time to time, mostly by whalers and sealers looking for new prey to hunt. What changed then? Why the renewed interest that would see 17 expeditions send 22 men to their deaths, alongside countless sled dogs, horses, animals shot for food, a whole load of toes, fingers and minds lost in the cold and dark? Well, we have to talk about something that won't feature much this season, the Dundee Antarctic Expedition. This one doesn't get counted in the usual tally of the heroic age, whose name we will get to, don't worry, because it was a whaling expedition that decided to go south instead of north. Whaling up north was in decline due to overfishing, and collecting seal pelts could fix you extra cash, so in 1892, they went. Their initial aim failed, the blue whales down south were a mite bit too powerful to be brought down by their methods, but the seal pelts helped them to break even. Two things happened here that changed history. The first was the presence of naturalists and scientists on board, including one William Spears Bruce and the artist William Murdoch. Together with their scientific and artistic publications, they helped spark a renewed interest in Antarctica. Secondly, their steam-powered whaling ships had proved far more capable than previous vessels at cutting the ice-laden waters of the Southern Ocean. Ross and Crozier had been using ships that, as we discussed in our previous episode on this sort of subject, were woefully underpowered and not as advanced as they thought they were. Technology had come away since then, and the steam and sail whaling ships were doing just the trick, and they influenced later Antarctic shipbuilding designs. Then, in 1893, a lecture was given at the Royal Geographical Society in London by Dr John Murray, often called the father of oceanography. Using data collected by whalers over the past six years, he proposed that Antarctica was not only worth exploring, but the ultimate scientific goal within the new century to come. The 1895 6th International Geographical Congress, also in London, passed a general resolution calling on scientific societies throughout the world to promote the cause of Antarctic exploration, quote, in whatever way seemed them most effective, to bring additions to almost every branch of science. The Congress featured Norwegian explorer Karsten Borchgrevink, who had just returned from a whaling expedition during which he had become one of the first people to set foot properly on the Antarctic mainland. During his address, Borgchenvik outlined plans for a full-scale, pioneering Antarctic expedition to be based at Cape Adair. This conference would set the tone for the next 30 years and come to define much of what would follow. In 1897, the Belgian Geographical Society launched its expedition, the subject of today's episode, and the heroic age of Antarctic exploration had officially begun. There's that name again. It's so loaded and sounds very... specific. Why the heroic age? Well, the name refers to a couple of things, I suppose, and it is the one we'll be generally be using because it's the one that's generally used by historians when referring to this period of history in relation to Antarctic exploration, but it has more to do with society and literature than history, to be frank. The general reason it's called the Heroic Age is because the expeditions launched to go south and those who achieved such goals as reaching the South Pole were done well before significant technological leaps of the 1920s and 30s would make later exploration far easier. 
For instance, the ships that went on these expeditions had steam engines, but they also had sails and masts. The cause of scurvy being vitamin C deficiency wouldn't be confirmed until around 1928, and wireless radio had only just been invented in 1895 and was in its infancy. For the purposes of travel, supply, communication, keeping warm and sheltered, and all the facets of exploring, the people who went on these expeditions were fighting uphill battles that later generations, in parts because of their efforts, wouldn't face. In addition, they were facing totally uncharted territory. The people mapping it, explorers from Europe often rightly mocked for their staunch refusal to listen to indigenous people, getting them killed in easily preventable ways. In Antarctica, there was nobody to speak to for advice, although we will visit that later as for a certain overachieving Norwegian manages to circumvent this general trend. We'll touch on the end of the heroic age in the final episode of this season, but I think we should start by paraphrasing a line from Tom Griffith's work Slicing the Silence, Voyaging to Antarctica. The Heroic Age was anachronistic before it had even begun. It encapsulated the apogee of the virtues of the Victorian and Edwardian eras, manliness, determination, and doing things the right way, with romantic but flawed heroes as easily recognisable central figures reaching for abstract goals. For new nations like Norway and Australia, it was a way of proving ground to test their mettle, and it was one of the last things that European powers would work together on before violently blowing each other up in the First World War. As not to say that the heroic age didn't have heroes, and as we'll see throughout this season, there were certain individuals who behaved in heroic ways and achieved things nobody would have believed possible, but that is to say that using the term heroic age, we aren't necessarily lionising these figures, and we will be looking into all the places they went wrong. This is demystified, and we get our hands dirty in the inner workings of history. As I've mentioned several times already, we will be taking a look at the mistreatment of sled dogs, so get ready for that. So, the Heroic Age is generally considered to encapsulate 17 expeditions from a variety of countries the UK, Norway, Belgium, Germany, Australia and New Zealand, Japan, Sweden, and France, between the years 1897, the Belgica expedition, and 1922, the final expedition of Ernest Shackleton. We're going to be looking at six in particular this season that I believe are important to examine for various reasons the first expedition, the two competing pole expeditions, two of the forgotten expeditions and why they were forgotten, and one of the most famous survival stories of all time. The period is absolutely chock full of people and ideas that will need demystifying. Names like Scott, Amundsen and Shackleton will bring something up in most people's minds, but why is it you've never heard of Nobushirase, the Japanese explorer, or the Australian expedition that produced so much research it was still being compiled 30 years later? But let's get right down to it. Set the scene. The year is 1896, and the place is Belgium. Yep, with the Norwegians and British setting records north and south throughout the centuries, it's the Belgians who kicked things off in a major way, though truth be told others were already making their plans too. The key man here is Adrian Victor Joseph de Gellash de Gomery, or just Adrian de Gellash. He's a captain in the Belgian Navy, because reminder, Belgium was also a colonial power at the time, who had recently been turned down for a trip to the Congo and wanted to make his name as an explorer. He got his start working as a cabin boy on ocean liners and after narrowly avoiding getting an engineering degree, joined the Belgian Navy at the age of 20. He'd been fairly widely travelled initially, heading around the world, but grew bored in his post ferrying people across the English Channel, and so he tried to sell himself as an explorer. So, hearing about renewed interest in going south, he proposed his plan to head for Antarctica to the Royal Geographical Society of Belgium, the SRBG, in 1894, one year before the big conference, remember some of these wheels are already in motion. The first step in this plan is getting a ship. Remember how whaling ships are uniquely good at this kind of thing? 
Well, with funds raised by the SRBG, De Gerlach buys the Patria from Norwegian whalers, refits her with some fancy new science upgrades, and renames her the Belgica. In terms of the crew, De Gerlach takes the rather interesting step of going far afield in terms of recruitment. We'll see an interesting divide this season of those who pick crews entirely for nationalistic reasons, i.e., for he himself has said it, and it's clearly to his credit, that he is an Englishman, versus those who take on board the expertise of a variety of backgrounds. The expedition was state-sponsored. De Gerlach and the SRBG got some of the funding, but the Belgian government pitched in two large subsidies, so this is also sort of iffy in that sense. The crew was, as stated, from a variety of places. You had De Gerlach and Georges Lequant, the other Belgian as commander overall and captain respectively, Roald Amundsen, because of course, as first mate, American Henry Cook, a surgeon who would later claim, though much disputed, to be the first man to reach the North Pole, scientists from Poland and Romania, able seafarers from Norway, and a singular Frenchman. To note, there were Belgian scientists and sailors and people working multiple roles, but to give the whole manifest right now would be way too extensive. In total, 23 men departed from Antwerp on the 16th of August 1897, though the journey southward would be interesting, to say the least. Second side note, one must remember that in Antarctica, July-August is midwinter because hemispheres, so they're sailing in what is the summer in the northern hemisphere, hoping to reach the south by the start of spring. The expedition leaves Antwerp and things almost immediately go wrong. This will end up not going so great overall, but it kind of sets the trend. The ship had been overloaded with supplies, 40 tons of food in 10,000 tin cans, and it broke down in the North Sea and went straight back to Belgium, to Ostend, for repairs. Two men desert, and two more go AWOL and return drunk. Not a great start. After a near miss almost ramming the Belgian royal yacht, which might have been a good thing I suppose, the vessel reached Rio de Janeiro in Brazil on the 6th October 1897. There they picked up Frederick Cook and replaced their French cook with a Swedish one, as well as firing their mechanic, Joseph de Vivier. They then went to Montevideo in Uruguay, where they rehired de Vivier, but he screwed up by letting the boilers run dry as soon as they redocked in Punta Arenas in southern Chile, they fired him again. What a guy. They also had a disciplinary incident that required the aid of the Chilean Navy, for which the Swedish Kirk and three more sailors get the boot. Start as we mean to go on, hey lads? After all these setbacks, the Belgians depart for Antarctica on the back foot in the winter, southern hemisphere's summer of 1897-98. Here they lose their first man, the first person to die in the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Norwegian sailor Carl Vienke was swept overboard in a wave in a storm, never to be seen again, on the 22nd January 1898. In his honour, an island was named just off the Antarctic mainland. Part of me wishes I could say, and that was the worst of it, this story's just getting started. On the 15th of February they crossed the Antarctic Circle, the last major circle of southern latitude markings on the map, and they went for broke. Summer typically ends in March down there, and they had precious little time to make as much headway as possible before... Pack ice. Yeah, it was bound to happen. On the 3rd of March 1898, the Belgica became wedged in pack ice near Peter the First Island in the Bellinghausen Sea. Some historians believe that this was an intentional move on de Gerlache's part, hoping that it would prevent him from drifting too far. By wedging himself as close to shore as possible, it would put him in a better position come spring to go further. But the coming of spring meant surviving the winter and that was something that they weren't fully prepared for. Indeed, the crew of the Belgica was uniquely unsuited for the Antarctic winter. First off, despite being undermanned compared to what they'd planned for, I count in my head at least six people ditched before they got here and one person lost, they still didn't have enough warm clothes for every man on board. This meant sharing, and a smaller roster of men who could work in the cold. 
they did manage to improvise some more clothes from things they brought, but that was a stopgap. The food they brought ran out sooner than expected, and what they did have was monotonous to consume. They put a lot of chips on the canned food roulette disc, much like Franklin had, and though they weren't similarly cursed with lead poisoning or botulism, they did get bored very quickly with the lack of variety. And here the biggest problem starts to sink in, the mental factor. There's a reason Franklin spent so much space in his ship on books and costumes. Men who were stuck at the same place for months on end better have something to do. They hunted some seals and penguins before the winter, but this meant that come winter the region was devoid of wildlife, adding to the sense of loneliness. De Gilles had initially banned consumption of the penguin and seal meat, even though it was relatively fresh compared to the non-perishable cans, because he didn't like how it tasted. He hated it, in fact, and this turned him away from it. Bad move, as it turns out. The polar night began on the 17th of May and lasted until late July. The scurvy set in relatively quickly. Remember, the isolation of vitamin C deficiency as the cause hadn't been ascertained, and not everyone subscribed to the citrus solution, and even then, bottled citrus only lasts so long and you can only bring so much. De Gaulle and his two IC Laquants suffered particularly badly. So badly that they wrote their wills, as mentioned earlier, they genuinely thought they were going to die. One man did die. Geophysicist Lieutenant Emile Danko died of heart failure on the 5th of June. He's also got an island named in his honour for what that's worth to him. Morale tanked. Several men began to show signs of mental illness and tension mounted in the cramped confines of the hull. According to one account, which I couldn't find multiple sources for, one man lost his mind, hopped the gunnel onto the ice, and declared his intention to walk back to Belgium. We do know that one man, Norwegian sailor Adam Tollefsen, did lose his mind. He suffered a complete mental breakdown and was confined to an asylum for the rest of his drastically shortened life when the crew returned to Europe. We'll go back to him later. But as we'll continue to see... The polar night can do terrible things to those unaccustomed to it or those unprepared for it. They say pressure turns coal to diamonds or diamonds to dust. Whichever is true, Frederick Cook and Roald Amundsen, our overachieving Norwegians, step up to the plate and take command. Amundsen will get a huge long chapter later on this season, so we'll be covering him later. I'll save most of that for then. At this point, though, he was a newbie. It wouldn't be until 1903 that he'd launch his Northwest Passage expedition, so this was his trial by fire, so to speak. He was 26 years old at this point in the story, so don't think of him as hardened Arctic veteran Arvinson. This is his first run. Cook, on the other hand, had had some experience that would prove vital to the men's survival. He had been with another polar notable, Robert Peary, to Greenland back in 1891, and here we see the first instance of this playing a part. They had learned things from the Inuit in Greenland. One thing they'd noticed is that despite eating an all-meat diet, the Greenland Inuit didn't get scurvy so there must be something in fresh meat that prevents scurvy. So Cook insisted on eating the seal and penguin meat, which had sat frozen and mostly unused due to de Gilash's insistence on not eating it. He made each man eat a little bit every day, just a little, and eventually de Gilash had some. And the scurvy improved. That's the thing about scurvy, you can really just turn it around in a day if you get that vital vitamin C. Dying of scurvy is particularly tragic because even just a little bit can make a difference, and though it doesn't contain much, raw meat and organs do contain some. And so they recovered, slowly but surely. But the worst was far from over, because although the summer had eventually arrived, the ice hadn't melted. They were still trapped, and if they should suffer another winter on the ice with no more fresh meat, no new warm clothes, and nothing more to do than sit and stew, they'd never make it out of it alive or sane. When January came around, the height of summer, the ice was still seven foot thick around the ship, 
and no Thor could be seen. Hope dwindled, and the crew started to prepare themselves for what seemed inevitable. But then, just when things were at their lowest point, a chance, small but undeniably present. A half mile away they spotted open water, a lead as it's known, and Cook formed a plan. They'd tunnel a channel out to the lead and then sail as far as they could. Maybe if they could get far enough, perhaps a whaler could help them out, or they might even free themselves entirely. So a mad dash was made, men desperately digging and dynamiting their way to freedom, blowing clear chunks of ice and creating trenches to allow themselves to reach the open water. It took weeks of digging to even get the ship on the channel, starting off down it on the 15th of February. Time was running out. Imagine that situation. Every day you're doing the same thing, either waiting in that cold, listening to the groaning of the ice as it threatens to snap your ship at the waistline and leave you stranded or drowned, or on the ice in the intense wind and cold of the Southern Ocean, fruitlessly digging for handfuls of more ice each day to seemingly no avail, but knowing that if you give up, you and everyone you're with is doomed. Going down the channel was no easier. They moved at a snail's pace. It took them a whole month to go just seven miles. But by the 14th of March, they'd managed to clear the ice and had hit open water. Imagine that now. The sheer relief of having just made it. Remember, March is the start of winter, so if they get even a bit too slow, they risk more ice piling up or temperatures getting too cold to work outside for long periods, or that hellish polar night wreaking havoc on their sanity. To say that it was a close call is an understatement. They sailed back home and lost no more men, aside from the man who ended up in the mental hospital, but again, we'll return to him. The one other casualty of the expedition had been the ship's cat that had died back in the summer. They arrived back in Antwerp on the 5th of November 1899, over two years since they'd set sail, to a hero's welcome. It was a serious affair when they returned. Belgium, despite its mind-bendingly horrifying treatment of the people of the Congo, was still considered a junior power in terms of world empires, and this was a major publicity win for the relatively small nation. When word reached Brussels that they'd survived and were coming home, a committee had spent months planning the celebrations, and they were particularly spectacular. National anthems blared and flags waved as they came down the gangplank, and the men all received medals from the city of Antwerp. Some even got knighthoods and other honours. The expedition had been arduous, and incredibly poorly thought out. Some might say near suicidal. The men by rights shouldn't have made it back. But they did. And their efforts weren't wasted by any stretch. Their year's worth of meteorological data would prove invaluable to future expeditions, some of the first proper scientific readings of their kind to be taken there. When Georges Lecointe had recovered from his scurvy, he led Cook and Amundsen to test new equipment designs on the ice, and had even mapped out a potential route to the South Pole. Indeed, whilst you may have seen from my earlier telling like a bit of a flop, Lecointe was widely considered one of the main pillars of the expedition by those on it, and was fastidious in his measuring of data and collecting observations. They ended up providing some valuable insights into the exact sorts of physical and mental preparations necessary for surviving in that harshest of environments. All that remains of this segment of the show is to ask... What became of them? Well, Tegel Ash wrote a book, because of course he did, and did a bit more exploration both north and south. He was on a later French expedition south, but left early due to what can only be described as bad vibes on board that ship. He died in 1934, and his son Gaston became an explorer in his own right, leading the second Belgian expedition to Antarctica 60 years after the first, in 1957. Lecointe fought in the First World War and eventually became president of the Belgian Royal Geographical Society. He died in 1929. Roald Amundsen will get to, just trust me, too much to even say right now. Frederick Cook, however, went northward next. 
He claimed to have climbed Denali, formerly Mount McKinley, in Alaska in 1903, the tallest mountain in North America, and also claimed to have reached the North Pole in 1908. This claim was disputed by his old friend and now rival Robert Peary, who had claimed his own achievement at the Pole in 1909 to be the first. Historians now think that both accounts were incorrect, and so it might be that Amundsen, again, was actually the first at the North Pole. He ended up in jail after possibly accidentally, possibly on purpose, fraudulently promoting oil companies in Texas, and was pardoned in 1940 and died shortly after being freed. Cook's legacy is very interesting, but we'll save that for the next chapter. One of the Polish scientists, Henry Kartowski, ended up being hugely influential on the studying of Antarctica, with several places and phenomena being named after him, as well as becoming influential in the broader Polish scientific community. So that's the story all told. Let's get a little more of a closer look, shall we? Let's get to the demystifying of the Belgic Air Expedition of 1897, the first of the heroic age. Sets the turn well, eh? Several men fired before we even reached the Southern Ocean, including that fastidious mechanic who got fired, rehired, and then fired again. One man washed overboard and another lost to the conditions, the near loss of the whole expedition due to pack ice and scurvy, and several instances of polar madness, including one that was permanent. In spite of that, though, This was the one that lit the fire under the asses of every other major polar explorer, showing that it wasn't just the north that was worth exploring. Let's start with the planning and preparation of the expedition. How should we view it? Well, in terms of preparation, some legwork seems to have been done, but not enough. They knew to take a ship that had sufficient steam engines to make way without wind and through ice, and they fitted it to make scientific observations, which proved useful. In terms of provisions, a less glowing review. Canned food is good and all, but variety in your diet is a big part of general mental health, and as we've seen, mental health is nine-tenths of this sort of thing. They didn't have enough warm clothes for all the men. In the Antarctic. On a ship where they had fewer men than they had intended to sail with. They didn't have enough warm clothes. It almost seems impossible to manage it, but here we are. That's how underprepared they were, or rather, that's the fact that many of its principles weren't super well-versed in polar exploration. De Gerlache had wanted to go to the Congo, and if he'd had his way, he'd be cruising on a riverboat committing genocide for rubber and ivory, but that didn't happen, and he went south instead. I haven't enough free time to dig into his reasons for choosing south, but from my reading thus far, it does seem that he had a decently inquisitive mind. Indeed, the scientific legitimacy of this expedition ended up being borne out, which is better than some of our later ones can say. We also see the influence of personality on small-scale events like this. In general, I think that great man history, the idea that certain people are destined for greatness, is stupid. It's dumb. Great man history sucks. But on something like a polar expedition, especially in this heroic age where personalities make a lot of difference, individuals do influence the outcome. Let's start with Digalash. He seems to have been a fine enough leader, at least in terms of laying down the law and keeping people together, but he doesn't seem to have won an appraisal to have known what he was getting himself into. He did take a cosmopolitan team of people from around the world and a variety of backgrounds and experiences. Smart move. Shows that he perhaps knew that he didn't know everything. He also, however, failed to bring enough warm clothes, overloaded his vessel with supplies that ended up not sufficing, and refused, against the advice of a man who had been to the Arctic before, to eat the fresh meat because he didn't like how it tasted. The Quant provided much-needed scientific edge to things, insofar as the appraisal of the other crew members like Amundsen were concerned. This is important because outside of the science, we have to look at the reasons for why one goes to Antarctica in this age, and beyond science, they're kind of dumb. 
Not at all hard to understand. Mind, like I myself, I'm someone who wants to see as much of the world as possible. I love traveling to new places. To that end, to have the opportunity to go where no one had gone before is a dream come true. But you also have to consider that you pay for that. And you pay for it with every sailor who's been washed overboard, or who gets a heart attack, or who loses their mind, or who gets scurvy or frostbite. We have to acknowledge that on the one hand they did sign up willingly, but on the other hand they couldn't have known all of the risks, especially for first-timers. If you're the commander of this expedition and you're leading men into a place where there's a very real chance they won't come back, you'd better have a good reason. Not that we don't understand their motivations, more than under the light of modern context, some of them look kind of stupid. Again, we'll cover Amundsen later on, it just helps to keep things neat and save time for me talking about him right now. But the guy I want to get to is Frederick Cook. What's his legacy here? Well, he plants a seed that will be the saviour of some and the downfall of others. How we learn from these experiences and these expeditions going forward. Compared to the others on this expedition, Cook was no spring chicken. He'd been to the Arctic before and faced hardships there. He'd done something that others hadn't. He'd learnt. He had spent time with the Inuit in Greenland and learned from them what to do in these life or death situations. It was Cook who suggested eating the seal and the penguin, because he'd asked the Inuit what they ate and they'd told him. Seal, amongst other things. He was also the one who spearheaded the plan to get them out of the ice. This isn't to downplay the role of the others, but in all of my research and reading, he comes up as the guy who knows what he's doing, and it seems to be that at every turn in his earlier career, whether from the Inuit or other explorers or his own experience, he learns. That keeps him and everyone else alive when everything's falling to shit. And who is Cook travelling with? Roald Amundsen, who becomes the poster boy for learning from the Inuit being beneficial in a later polar voyage? Roald Amundsen. If you want to get fit quick, by the way, do a push-up every time I say Roald Amundsen this season. The point is that some pick up on this, the passing of knowledge that can only be earned in one way. Others don't. They rely on established wisdom, what tradition and history dictates, or rely on technology to do the heavy lifting. As we discussed with the naming of this period, the heroic age, and the next is the mechanical age, I'll let you figure out just how well relying on mechanics goes here. But we also said we cover the people who don't get into the history books, so let's take a moment to remember them. My nomination for the focus of this episode is Adam Tollefsen, the man who died in an asylum shortly after they returned to Belgium. He didn't get to enjoy the fanfare, or the medals. Wouldn't have meant much to him when he was told his name was written in the book of the city of Antwerp. Tollefsen had been one of the more experienced men on the ship, having been to the Arctic before. But he started getting paranoid of everyone that winter, jumping at shadows, hearing his crewmates whisper about him in every sound. He forgot how he even got on board, and his friends soon became worried about him. He started writing and posting letters to someone called Agnes. By posting, I mean he shoved them in a snow bound that looked like a mailbox. And to keep his spirit up, his shipmates removed them and would say, they've been sent. Eventually, they couldn't trust him to do ship's work. They were too afraid about him holding a boat knife and giving them sideways glances. Torlefsen wasn't the only one to suffer fits of psychosis or other mental ailments that winter, but his was the worst, and he didn't recover. Mental health problems plague those who spend too long in the Antarctic today, and form the basis of the film, based on a film, based on a book, The Thing, which I'd highly recommend, not just because it's good, but to get a sense of the bleakness and the cold and the paranoia and the tension that can exist in that situation. To sum up the whole thing, I'll quote Frederick Cook himself as referenced in Julian Sancton's Madhouse at the End of the Earth. Quote, the long night, with its potential capacity for tragedy, makes a madhouse of every polar camp. Here, men love and hate each other in a passion which defies description. Murder, suicide, starvation, insanity, 
icy death and all the acts of the devil become regular mental pictures. End quote. Put a pin in that for later this season. But to get back to the expedition, how do we appraise it? And what do we think of the heroic age so far compared to one's expectations? Well, I'm guessing you didn't expect it to be the Belgians who set things off. If you know this period, you probably know Scott Armanson and Shackleton. We will cover all three, but we'll also go further afield. And I wanted to emphasize off the bat that this wasn't just a handful of extremely seafaring, wealthy nations that wanted to go to Antarctica. As I said before, Japan was even in on the action. But Japan was a colonial power, and this was a time when empire was a serious thing. When I mention Norway, at this time it's part of the Kingdom of Sweden-Norway, and wouldn't become independent until 1905, partway during our story. Hell, even Japan wouldn't be far from having its own imperial horror story of Korean and Chinese human rights violations. Antarctic exploration isn't colonial in the sense that the exploration of the New World was, but that same mindset is in the heads of a lot of these people. You do this, amongst other reasons, for king and country. When de Gerlache returns to Belgium, what's the reception? Flags flying in every window, the national anthem blaring from the bandstand. He's given the Order of Leopold Award. Nationalism is a part of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, whether or not it played a significant role in the actual events taking place on the ice. And from that, why don't we know more about the Belgica expedition? Well, I wager firstly, it didn't go super well. Despite the scientific discoveries and the paving the way for future expeditions in terms of expectation and preparedness, they didn't make landfall on Antarctica, they didn't set any major records, and other than the market achievement for Belgium, some of those on board, you know who, were left hungry for more. Secondly, nationalism. As we'll see later on, when the British fail at something, they get every front page in every history book. When the Japanese succeed at their goals, nobody remembers them. It doesn't take a genius to work out one of the reasons why. You could chalk it up to publicity and the reception of the audiences back home, which was a factor, but it's undeniable that history favours not the winners, but those who get their stories told. And as we said right at the beginning, it's about who you know. British explorers knew better people for getting their stories in the books, and the British Empire was great for getting books of British heroes onto shelves. Belgian heroes don't sell so well. Can we learn a lesson from this expedition, and about Antarctica? Well, I do hope that despite the hardships the Belgica faced, I haven't scared you off Antarctica. It's going to be grim pretty much every episode in some aspect, but it is a truly unique and beautiful land that has an innate something that you can't find anywhere else. We'll touch on environmentalism later on in this season, but for now, just remember that there was a reason that they all wanted to go and see it for themselves. As for a lesson, I think one could say that being prepared is its own reward. If I choose that as a lesson for this, I'll need to be real selective later on, because you could save this for all of them. How about Eisenhower? Plans are useless, planning is indispensable. There are a lot of factors that a guy like de Gerlache couldn't have foreseen, but should that have precluded him from going altogether? He ended up forging a generational legacy of exploration, so it worked out alright for him in the end, but it also so nearly didn't. Is that an endorsement of taking risk for reward, or a cautionary tale? Perhaps it's too early to make a judgement call on the heroic age just yet, as some of our main characters haven't even entered the stage. Some of the biggest acts of the variously heroic endeavours and unmitigated disasters have yet to happen. So stay tuned for more as we close the book for now at least on the Belgica expedition, the first of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. I am going to start updating him regularly now. And support us on Patreon at Demystified by Ashley Styles. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.